Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Dana Brackman-Reeser, Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School, and Stephen Dean, Professor of Law at Boston University. We'll be discussing their new book, For-Profit Philanthropy, Elite Power and the Threat of Limited Liability Companies, Donor-Advised Funds, and Strategic Corporate Giving. I'll add a link to the book in the show notes for the episode. Dana, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, and Steve, welcome back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Dana, Steve, this is one of a series of books that you two have co-authored, bringing together your collective expertise, Dana, in nonprofit law and corporate law and Steve in tax law. And you're discussing the topic of philanthropy in society. And I wonder if we could start our conversation by looking back in history a bit to how philanthropy has been practiced by the elites in our society over the last 100 years or so. If I'm, let's say, a rich person and I want to contribute some sizable portion of my fortune to some charitable cause. How do I traditionally go about doing that? What are my options if I want to do some serious giving as an elite, as a rich person in American society? You're right to peg this at about the last century because really around the turn of the 20th century is when elites, particularly those who were making fortunes in new industrialized businesses, began to think of turning their attention to philanthropy. And there was a desire on the part of many of these industrialists to pursue philanthropy in a more systematic and professionalized way than simply giving out their funds haphazardly. And they wanted to build institutions in the same way they had built for their businesses. And this is when the idea of the General Purpose Foundation really came into being as repository for assets of elites. And this is certainly not something that folks of limited means would do, or even the upper middle class affluent would do. It's really the ultra wealthy of any given period. They would set up a foundation and use its funds over time to make charitable contributions. And this allowed for developing a staff and an expertise in engaging in that grant-making process. But it also created these very socially powerful organizations that became subject to a lot of critique and concern on the part of both the populace and the press and policymakers. And so there were various attempts throughout the first many decades of the 20th century to pursue regulation against the perceived power and influence being wielded by foundations, which really culminated in 1969 when the legal form of the private foundation that we know today came together in a piece of tax legislation, the Tax Reform Act of 1969. And since then, both individuals as well as corporations have been able to create private foundations that operate in the same general way as I was describing before, where they are a repository for assets. They can have a professionalized staff that engages in the process of grant making as well as managing those assets, but it's guided by a fairly significant regulatory structure that applies to any organization that is going to operate as a foundation. I'd like to talk about that 1969s 
1960s regulatory structure. If I want to start a private foundation, are there benefits that I might obtain from doing that, either tax benefits or control benefits? Are there trade-offs in creating a private foundation and accepting the regulation of this 1960s act? And if there are trade-offs, if there's somewhat of a bargain between the very wealthy donor on one hand and the government on the other hand, what's the public policy purpose that's really animating that trade-off or that bargain? It's a really interesting question, Andrew. Just to underscore something that Dana mentioned, philanthropists, wealthy industrialists were eager to give money away, but they were not that eager. Maybe the best way to describe it, it was a certain self-confidence that went along with being an incredibly successful industrialist. And they generally thought that the best person to decide what to happen to all that wealth was them. <laughs> they really were pretty excited to give it away, but they didn't want to just give it away. They wanted to really control it. And that understandably made everybody else pretty nervous. Especially Congress. As Dana mentioned, there's a lot of friction, a delicate way to put it, between these really wealthy and powerful individuals and the legislators and the public. As Dana mentioned, this all came together in 1969, and there were big questions. And 1969 addressed a lot of them in ways that probably left everybody a little bit frustrated. I'll give you an example. One of the big questions in the decades leading up to 1969 was whether these private foundations, as they were ultimately called, could be perpetual. Right. So could you create something that would last forever? And there are, in all areas of the law, we wonder whether permanence is a good thing. And I know Data is working on a project now that focuses on this question exactly. But this is a big question for these organizations. Lots of concerns. Are the ideas that we have today ones that should be enshrined in perpetuity? Are they not? And so in 1969, was agreed to, I think, by these two sides was, yes, it could be permanent, but we're going to impose some modest distribution requirements. Just a small percentage of the assets of a private foundation need to be donated to actual operating charities, although there are some loopholes that have arisen in recent years that relate to that. But generally, the Ford Foundation could last forever, but it does have to meet minimum distribution requirements every year. And 1969 Act is really complicated, and we're not going to get into all of it. Your listeners would 100% tune out about 20% of the way in. But I think that does give us a flavor of the kind of compromise that was struck between the government and the public and philanthropists that they could keep these going forever, but they couldn't just hoard 100% of the assets forever. They would have to regularly every year give away at least some small part. There were all sorts of other requirements, other things they had to do, other things they couldn't do. They had to stay out of politics, for example. A lot of concern that this would be a way for these industrialists to extend their already extraordinary degree of power. So those are the kinds of rules that were created in 1969. And as we describe it, and I think this is somewhat a controversial position, we view it as something of a bargain between the public and philanthropy. I think because the 1969 Act was a tax reform act, it's easy to see what's going on as a way of extracting revenues from these philanthropists, imposing an estate tax, and so on. But generally, people don't really pay much by way of these taxes. They really are just a, a way of establishing some ground rules, some baseline, some limits on what these foundations can do. 
That's some of the historical background of this compromise, starting with 100 years ago and ending in late 1960s. But you have both identified some new developments in the world of elite philanthropy that are giving you some pause, some concern that are motivating perhaps this book. You mentioned in the subtitle, A Threat from Some of These Developments. I'd like to get into some of the nitty gritty of these developments in a moment, but I wondered if you could tell us in a high level, give us a brief on what concerns you have with some developments in this space. What are those developments and why might they motivate this project of yours? We talk about three case studies, although they are certainly not the only examples of what we're seeing. We talk about philanthropic limited liability companies. And the most prominent example of that is the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, founded in 2015 by Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan. This is, to most lay people, you might think it's a foundation, but it's not a foundation. It's not a tax-exempt entity. It is not subject to any of the regulation that Steve was describing. It is a limited liability company. And using a limited liability company as a hub for philanthropy is a growing trend. And it didn't just begin in 2015, but it was certainly publicized more when Mark Zuckerberg got into that practice. There are certainly some earlier adopters over the decade before. And since 2015, We've seen the interest and the use of this technique thrive. It's hard to say how many folks are using this technique because limited liability companies are not public in the same way that a foundation would be, which is part of our concern. The second example we talk about are donor-advised funds. Particularly, we're talking about donor-advised funds that are affiliated with commercial investment firms. And a donor-advised fund is essentially an account And when it is operated by one of the fund managers that is connected with these investment firms, it is an account very similar to one's other accounts with the investment firm, often viewable on the same kind of dashboard for clients. And what you do with this account is contribute assets to the account. Those assets become legally the assets of the managing entity, and they can only be distributed for charitable purposes to what are called public charities, organizations typically that engage in charitable programming rather than grant making alone. But the distribution is not time limited. So the distribution can happen at any time whenever one might prefer to make those distributions. And the one who makes the decision is still the donor. Although those assets are now legally the property of the fund and its manager, which is called a sponsor, the sponsor doesn't make decisions decisions about where the assets are distributed. It follows the advice of the donor and even the donor's successors should the donor appoint them at their death. So you can see this really operates in a very similar way to a foundation, but it escapes, among other things, the distribution requirement that Steve mentioned before. Another thing that it escapes is transparency. There's a lot of disclosure required for foundations. You can find out who their donors are and where their distributions are being made publicly online. But with a donor-advised fund, all of the distributions of the many funds controlled by, for example, Fidelity Charitable are aggregated. 
validated in their disclosures. So it's impossible to connect the donors and the recipients. Now, many times a donor advice fund might be used by a less affluent person who certainly couldn't afford to set up the infrastructure for a foundation. But the research has shown is that they are being used to a large extent by the same elite donors who would ordinarily in the past have used foundations. And that's part of what connects this to the LC example, which is doing the same thing, substituting and sometimes complementing the use of foundations. The third example, strategic corporate giving, is when corporate donors make similar moves where they avoid this foundation vehicle. Many corporations do have corporate foundations and do their giving through corporate foundations, but they can also give directly through their ordinary for-profit business divisions. And what we're seeing in philanthropy, and this is a trend that's been going on now for at least the past two decades, we're seeing the coordination of corporate philanthropy with the business model and business practice of our largest corporations. They're not sending money to the foundation to pursue whatever might be valuable in the community or to address social issues identified in the corporation's foundation's mission, but instead they are very deliberately connecting their philanthropy with their business goals. For example, making a grant that will allow them to develop new technology in partnership with nonprofit organization and then roll that technology out to new markets or as a new product to their existing markets. So each of these examples concerns us because they're all examples of where practices and players and norms from the for-profit sector migrating into philanthropy and particularly coordinating the avoidance of the foundation model. And the foundation model, as we discussed earlier, is there to provide for public input on the targets of elite philanthropy to manage and push the timing of distributions so that they are public serving and also to ensure transparency. And each of these examples has in common that in various ways they avoid those policy goals and some, but not all of them, also enable an avoidance of the kind of lock-in that we get with foundations where the assets cannot be stripped out. And these have all been discussed in the academic and in some cases the popular press around philanthropy, but they haven't been connected as engaging in the same kind of workarounds to avoid regulation. And we wanted to shine a light on what is lost, right? Donors are gaining a lot of flexibility, a lot of control. They have, see a lot of value in these tools, even when sometimes they have to give up some tax advantages. But what's on the other side of that bargain from 1969 is what the public needs from philanthropy and the public's interest in having some level of control over elite power wielded in this way. We think that's what's being lost in all of these examples and in other examples of for-profit philanthropy that are also being developed. So we have this new set of developments where the ultra wealthy or even the modestly wealthy might be able to opt out of the 1969 bargain between the public and donors, where donors are perhaps receiving some tax benefits, they are getting some control benefits, but there is a level of public accountability with their charitable giving. There is a level of preventing the perpetual accumulation of wealth outside 
outside of some regulated space. So this is the 1969 bargain. And as you note, some folks like Mark Zuckerberg are opting out of that bargain. Perhaps a skeptical view of your concern, though, is, is there anything wrong with this? If Mark Zuckerberg decides not to engage in philanthropy at all, he can certainly keep his money, spend it on yachts or private islands or a new metaverse company, whatever that might be. So what's the problem if he wants to trade some tax benefits for keeping control and avoiding some of that accountability with how he spends his money after all? What would you say to that skeptic? So it's a fair question, Andrew. And what I would really do is take a step back. If you start with the premise that it's all Mark Zuckerberg's money and he can do whatever he wants with it, I think that there's a fundamental difference of opinion on whether that's true. So you have the libertarian view that government should have as little power as possible. And in a world without the state, of course, we'd all be living in caves, war of all against all, as they say. So Mark Zuckerberg might not be really that wealthy in a world without taxes. That's maybe a slightly unhinged way of saying, I don't think it's right to assume that it's all Mark Zuckerberg's money and we have to justify taking it even from him closer to the better question is what portion of those earnings is Mark Zuckerberg entitled to and what portion of it really does the public have some right to through some form of taxation or other form of regulation and one of the ways that the grand bargain addressed this the grand bargain said you can keep your foundation factual but it also gave these philanthropists a way to avoid taxation right a different way a a different bargain would be, thank you very much for earning all this wealth. We'll take half, right? We'll take half of your wealth and we'll spend it on things that the government thinks are a fine idea. And it turns out to be pretty hard to separate really wealthy people from their money. I guess you won't be surprised to learn that, but it's really quite hard. And certainly in 1969, there was a lot of, this is around when the alternative minimum tax was first created because a lot of very wealthy people were paying no tax at all. So the question wasn't what percentage of tax should we collect from the wealthy? The question was something more like, could we collect tax from these folks at all? Should we just allow them to keep it and put certain guardrails on how they spent it, requiring them generally to spend it, at least in their view of the public interest, or we would go ahead and tax it? So. I think that the answer to the question of should Mark Zuckerberg be able to do whatever he wants with his wealth is not really the right question at a very high level. And I think that when you think about what some of these folks are doing, so another example is Steve Ballmer. We found out just by accident, there was an inadvertent data released by the IRS. He'd created a billion dollar donor advised fund. If he had created a billion dollar foundation, we would have known all about it because this is something that would be public, something you'd have to disclose. And so in a way, the donor advised fund is way better than a private island or, say, a rocket ship, because as Dana mentioned, once you form a donor advised fund, those assets are locked into the charitable stream forever. You know, maybe they won't make it out into the hands of actual charities for some time, but they're required to end up there someday. So certainly it's better than setting fire to the money or doing something really self-indulgent, but you're definitely losing the transparency. So notwithstanding the fact we know about that billion-dollar donor-advised fund, that was an accident, right? We shouldn't know about that donor-advised fund. And there's something that I think is less than optimal about that. Dana, do you want to add something on this question? I would just say we think it's really important to reconceptualize philanthropy regulation, not as how we regulate a subsidy to impel elites to engage in philanthropy, 
but instead as a bargain, as a bargain that society makes with elites that says you're going to wield power in so many ways. And when you do so under the cloak or the guise of philanthropy, we need to be able to trust that's really what you're doing, that you're really engaged in other regarding behavior. And the rules of play that apply for foundations really try to cabin the activities and to direct the activities of foundations toward those public regarding activities and away from, as Steve mentioned, entanglements in politics, also away from entanglements with the very businesses that donors control, an attempt to allow society to trust these elite philanthropists. And I think that trust is important for them. It's important for the philanthropic sector more broadly, and it's important for society because in American society, we count on philanthropy to do a huge amount of the social work that is required, the kind of social vision that's required in a society, we count on the philanthropic sector to fund that rather than the government. Kind of taking the question away from, well, if you don't want the subsidy, you don't have to do what the subsidy requires. And thinking more about how we're using this regulation to manage a really powerful force in our society that, as Steve mentioned, it's going to be quite difficult to control using a more kind of command and control type of regulation. You identify some troubling trends and problems in this book, and I wonder if there are any solutions to addressing these problems, whether the solutions might be command and control regulation, perhaps, or some form of a soft touch regulation, whether private ordering solutions might be in order. What thought have you given about solutions to these problems? It's a really interesting question, Andrew, and I think that's where we see that this phenomenon, which we describe globally and title of the book, for-profit philanthropy, we see both risks, but also opportunities here. For example, on the donor advised fund front, the way this works, there are really just a handful of really big platforms that are delivering this donor advised fund mechanism to both Goldman Sachs created the Steve Ballmer donor advised fund I mentioned earlier. But Fidelity, Vanguard, they all deliver these, those of really extraordinary means, but also to those of more modest means. And so when you have just a handful of these platforms that are in charge of this, that creates a real opportunity for private ordering to offer solutions that are not top-down command and control government solutions. In the book, we offer, for example, a way of not just re-regulating philanthropy, but updating the way we're thinking about philanthropy. So again, thank 1969, it was a long time ago. And a lot of the values that were front and center in 1969 are not necessarily those that we would want to lift up today. I don't think it's controversial to say that at least part of the reason 1969 happened the way it did was a real skepticism in Congress of civil rights organizations, civil rights work, some of these organizations. Some of what happened in 1969 was a way of curbing behavior that might have been viewed as controversial at the time that now we would really be, in general, certainly as compared to 1969, more open to. So for example, what could these platforms do that would lift up diversity and belonging initiatives in a way that nobody would have thought to do in 99. So if these organizations, Fidelity and Vanguard, will, for example, talk about their commitment to diversity, they could create just simple defaults or programs that would try to deploy the assets that are being warehoused in these donor-advised funds, because again, there's no distribution requirement, towards, say, a short list of organizations that are Black-led charities or other charities that 
that meet with the corporation's stated diversity and belonging goal. So that's something that they could do today. Could have done yesterday, but they can still do today or tomorrow. That would really make a pretty big difference. We also have some more ambitious ideas. We think of what happened in 1869 as a grand bargain where the public might have just wanted to tax the wealthy and take the money instead of themselves. The wealthy might have wanted to just keep the money and spend it however they wanted, maybe for the public good, maybe for their own purposes. But they compromised with this grand bargain of perpetual foundations that were subject to guardrails, but were really still within the control of a handful of people or a single individual. That's what happened in 1969. It was grand. But we think today we could also consider a more perfect bargain, is what we call it, that would try to re-envision the control, the threat of elite power that we talk about in the subtitle of the book in a more comprehensive way. So there certainly are opportunities to do this in small bore targeted ways or more ambitious ways. The book has been out for a few months now, and you've probably had some opportunities to workshop it and to get some reaction and feedback. What reaction have you gotten from the philanthropy world, whether donors or recipients of donations or intermediaries who are involved in the world of philanthropy? What reactions have you gotten? We've gotten a few reactions. One that I think is important to call out is really connected to what Steve was saying just now about a concern that we may be elevating foundations to an extent that is not deserved. And so there's plenty of work out there detailing the serious imperfections, if not pathologies, of foundations, right? Foundations are required to engage in much more disclosure, significant disclosure, while these organizations that we're describing when you do corporate philanthropy in-house or when you do and else or use a donor advice fund, there's a lot more obscurity. But foundation disclosure is problematic in many ways. And foundations themselves have serious challenges. They certainly are not a community that looks like the communities they serve. They are known to often be quite controlling of their grantees, although there is certainly an effort right now to engage in more power sharing with grantees and to do more kind of trust-based granting where foundations have less control over what happens to the funds and leave that to kind of operating charities and communities at the grassroots. So I think the biggest response that we've gotten is, do you really think foundations are so wonderful? And we certainly don't want everyone to go back to using the foundation form who has shifted to these new vehicles, mostly because we think that's just unrealistic, but also because foundations are not a paragon to which we aspire. But looking at the foundation rules really is a way to reveal these policy goals that we think are very important for philanthropy regulation because the foundation rules are what we have in terms of the biggest effort to regulate philanthropy. So that's where we can identify these policy goals. And we think some of them are very enduring. The idea of public input on the targets for philanthropic activity, the concerns about timing, certainly concerns about transparency. But we do think it's really important to inject new policy concerns. And some of our solutions address that, including the point that Steve just made about diversity and belonging. If I had to point to one major 
major response that we've gotten around the book is, aren't foundations problematic as well? And we say yes, but in different ways. And looking at these as developments, as ways to get around the foundation really reveals what work that foundation vehicle was doing. So that's probably the biggest response we've gotten. The other response that we do hear is that the book underplays the benefits that this shift has to offer. And that may be true, but we do think there are significant benefits, the platform effects that Steve was just talking about, but also because these innovations really show us how the view of philanthropy in elaborated in 1969 is not what we necessarily want philanthropy to be in 2023. And I think one of the really important takeaways from looking at these innovations is they come often from a desire to avoid the foundation rules because there is a view that the limitations on, say, involvement in politics or co-creation with business will limit the impact that philanthropy can have and the achievement of the social goals that philanthropists have. And we think that's important to flag. And if we underplayed it in the book, I don't want to underplay it in our conversation because these are really important questions about how to generate the greatest social impact. And if the current regulation is straightjacketing impact in ways that are motivating these alternatives, we need to learn from that and open up pathways that allow for greater impact, but also maintain those policy goals around transparency and timing and targeting that are enduringly important. I'll just add that Dana started this project as the expert on philanthropy, and I'm definitely still catching up on the question of why we have nonprofits and what they're for. But I definitely feel like I've learned a ton by working with Dana on this book. And I think what's so interesting is how easy it can be to lose the thread in the sense of why do we have philanthropy? What's it for? And I think that one of the things that we wanted to do with this book was to really force people to go back to those first principles and think about why we do this. One of my favorite philanthropies of all time actually is before 1969. So Julius Rosenwald, one of the things he did before certainly allowed to be perpetual, the reason you've never heard of the Rosenwald Foundation is because it was so great. It spent itself into oblivion, building schools in the segregated South for Black children. This isn't something that regulation made him do. This is something that he wanted to do. And I think it's important to think about how we get people to, on their own, to do the things that we think are important and are valuable. And that as in the segregated South of the time, that we just don't think government is able to do, or that more diffuse dispersed individuals are able to do. And how do we encourage that? I think Dana's right that when we look at for-profit philanthropy, it's easy to see the threat of elite power that I think it, it poses, but it's harder sometimes, certainly for somebody who's not a billionaire, to be more open to the possibilities that it presents for I'm not sure that, so it's easy to poke fun at the Zuckerberg Foundation for targeting disease. They're going to cure all diseases, which I guess I can't fault them for trying. Steve. We're ambitious. Steve. Um, yeah. Sorry, you said the Zuckerberg Foundation. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Uh, I'm So this is hilarious, Andrew, because that is the whole point. That it is not a foundation. So when the, the Zuckerberg, I'm sorry, the Zuckerberg Initiative, not foundation, says it's going to do that, if they can do that, and they can do that by avoiding the private foundation form and all that regulation, I applaud it. But it's hard not to be skeptical. So there's certainly promise there. And it certainly is funny that after writing a book, and the basic premise of which is this is not a foundation and we should worry about that, that I still can't get it straight is something worth lifting up and focusing on. 
Are there any closing thoughts you would like listeners to have from this conversation or perhaps opening thoughts for them to be thinking about as they are getting a copy of the book and reading more in depth? I would just say that right now in our society, we are reckoning with elite power in so many ways. And really the most important thing I think this book could do is to convince people to focus on philanthropy as an important way that elite power is wielded in our society and to think carefully about how we can both channel that power in ways that is productive, but also also enable its capacity to do good in the world. So I think we're as a society in a moment where that reckoning is seen in so many ways. And our goal was really to highlight the importance of philanthropy in those conversations. I think that's exactly right. And I'll just say that the mistake I usually make is by identifying the wrong Rockefeller. And I won't even attempt to identify the right one, although Dana always knows. When this Rockefeller tried to get Congress many years ago, long before 1969, to get a federal charter for his foundation, Congress said no. And this Rockefeller offered all sorts of safeguards. The Supreme Court would be one of the folks who could help decide who could be members, who could run the foundation, all sorts of protections like that would seem extremely over the top and invasive today, even despite all the objections, Congress said, no, we just don't trust you enough, elite philanthropists. We're just too worried about the power that we'd grant you by doing this to do it. So I think just understanding, as Dana says, that philanthropy is a way that elites exercise influence in society. And that may be great. <laughs> we may love it, but we need to understand that. I think we've gone so far from the world where Congress would refuse to grant that federal charter that it's important to just re-anchor ourselves in a more objective view of philanthropy. Our guests today have been Dana Brackman-Reeser, Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School, and Stephen Dean, Professor of Law at Boston University. We've discussed their new book, For-Profit Philanthropy, Elite Power and the Threat of Limited Liability Companies, Donor Advised Funds, and Strategic Corporate Giving. I'll a link to the book in the show notes for the episode. Dana, Steve, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.